It's always been interesting trying to make sense of global oil markets and uh, for a non-expert like myself. And so the recent events where OPEC plus uh, cut another million, uh, sorry, Saudi Arabia cut another million uh, barrels per day of production, trying to prop up prices. The market didn't respond well to that. What the heck is going on? I turned to the experts and I'm going to talk to Gregor McDonald, author of the Gregor Letter. Uh, who has all sorts of ex excellent insights. So welcome to the interview, Gregor. Hey, great to see you, Mark. I'm sorry there's a little uh, construction in the neighborhood right now. I hope that doesn't interfere with our, our chat. It doesn't. We'll work around it. Okay. Well, look, Gregor, so let's start with the Saudis. Sure. Uh, you've been very critical on Twitter uh, about the, the Saudis' decisions and their management of, right. of things. Uh, give me your argument. Yeah, I'll just make it, you know, it's, I could I could do a long PhD dissertation here, but we'll just I'll make it as tight as possible. Once upon a time, Saudi Arabia wanted to be the central bank of oil, and they were the central bank of oil. And the and you you achieve that position of power by being cool and rational and acting like a central banker. And Al Naimi. Uh, in, worked in conjunction with the government, and they made consistently good decisions. Not perfect, but you know, because they're future forecasting, they made consistently good decisions. Uh, increasing production when prices got too high, lowering production when prices got too low, but always with an eye on the global economy. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is a different generation. And he has entirely different concerns. Um, I think he's incompetent. Uh, I think he's giddy with the power of controlling oil in Saudi Arabia, but doesn't realize that it's not something you wield. It's something you manage. As long as you manage that powerful position correctly, you will retain your power. You'll retain your position as the central bank of oil. I think that's just gone out the out the window. I'll give you one example. Al Naimi would have would have helped the global economy during Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and if Putin was angry, Naimi probably would have said something like, "Look, dude, you're the one that invaded Ukraine, not us. You have to account for that, not us. We have a global economy to think about." So you see, you just don't have any of those considerations anymore. And what you have in in MBS is a bit of a a bit of a juvenile adolescent. So yeah. And there's a, a lot of talk about how the Saudis need eighty dollars a barrel to pay for their right. basically pay for their their government budget. And MBS seems to have a lot of grand ambitions. Uh, he's into all sorts of things, solar and hydrogen, and you know. Golf league mergers, financing new uh, uh, golf tours, that sort of thing. And what role does that play in his incompetence and his mismanagement of, of OPEC? So the analysis that says OPEC needs a certain price or the countries need a certain price, that is a useful component of one's analysis. But it can't be the only thing that drives, you know, OPEC policy. It's like, 
it's like a uh, it's an optimal goal that you'd like to have, but you can't always you can't always achieve that. One of the ways you achieve that is you make sure that you make sure that you don't destroy oil as a product in the market. You know, you don't hit consumers with high oil prices when they're already high. You got to lower those prices so that they're not alienated. 2022 is going to go down as a disastrous year for oil and fossil fuels because it scared the hell out of Europe. And Europe said, forget this. We are going to do whatever we can to get off natural gas and to get off oil. So, yeah. Okay. I'm very fond of saying that for the first time in 125 years, oil has a competitor and that's electricity. And how has the, the emergence of uh, the widespread adoption of wind and solar, but particularly solar, coupled with energy storage now, uh, and electric transportation, how has that changed the calculation uh, that OPEC makes when it's managed, trying to manage this? OPEC should have been thinking about that five years ago. They should have, they should have been thinking about that five years ago. They should, you know, old, old idea in business panic when your competitor just starts to get market share right you don't you don't wait till your competitor gets 5 10 15% market share panic when your competitor just starts to get market share ev started gaining market share you know 5 to 7 years ago and now they've now they've come on strong in fact california which is the edge economy may be one of the first big domains where you're where you're seeing petrol demand actually enter sustainable decline boy it took a while but i think we're i think we're there in california yeah let's talk about that because i've interviewed kingsmill bond from rocky mountain institute a number of times about this and and his analysis of course is is that uh oil peaked in 2019 and what we've seen since is not so i mean you know the pandemic aside i mean that's an anomaly but what we're seeing is is the the peak and then the plateau and you right. can never call you can never call plateaus because a plateau might be three years, it might be ten years. You don't right. know. But but his his analysis is that you're on the plateau, and uh, the the decline curve is on its way. You're you know you're yeah. it might be this year, might be two years from now, but you're you're going to get there pretty quickly. And you seem to share some of the same views that Kingsmill would share. I do. I just have a more extended, a slightly more extended time frame for when the decline actually occurs. I think we'll be on that plateau from 2019 to at least 2025 or 2026. And when I say a plateau, I define that as fluctuations of, you know, one to one and a half percent in demand. So if if your baseline is 2019 at 100 million barrels a day, we'll see 99, we'll see 100, we'll see 101, we might, you know, see 100 and a half, that's where you know that's where we'll be for a number of years. The decline isn't isn't here yet, unfortunately. But you know, the- we, we got the first we get we 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 got the first job done, which was to plateau, and that took a lot of work and a, and a lot of factors to get to that. So let's talk about the American market, and I'm particularly thinking of Alberta here because it produces about four million barrels uh, a day, about three point seven five, three point eight million barrels a day. A lot of it is most of it is heavy crude and uh it only has one market and that's the us so we've already seen gasoline sales plateau diesel is a peak it's diesel right. is on its way 
to a peak. So is is this, are we seeing a, a major structural change in the petroleum market in the U.S. driven by first by decline in, in, in gasoline, then the upcoming decline in diesel? Will it be offset by aviation and petrochemicals? How is that? How do you see that all playing out? Uh, you can look at the chart of, of American petrol demand. It's been on an oscillating plateau for you know 15 to 17 years. If California has entered sustainable decline, which I think it has, that's your sign that the decline is getting close in petrol for the United States. Uh, sales of internal combustion engine vehicles peaked in the United States in about 2016 or 2017. So that's about enough time for the fleet, the ICE fleet to really slow down, but it's still there. Um, and and there's just it's not we're not a growth market. We haven't been a growth market for oil since 2006, okay? But we haven't been a declining market either. It's not like you're losing with the United States. You're just not you're just not gaining with the United States. So Right. And 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 there are lots of factors for that. So uh even though you we the uh the fleet is now static, uh big shift to SUVs. So uh using a, a more fuel to go the same amount of uh, right. kilometers or miles, uh, right. even with uh, more greater efficiencies, those kinds of things. But yep. there's in the last, say, 17 years, there's never been a competitor to begin whittling away at that. Demand. That's right. And now there is. That's and now right. we're seeing, I think, a Bloomberg NEF, if I'm not mistaken. I wrote about it in a column today, but I think it was 20. Uh, EVs are set to be a percent, 26% of new vehicle sales by 2025 or 2026. Sounds about right. So it so it sounds like the next two to five years will really see the conditions where we can expect to see a decline start to happen. Yes, Mark, um, you know, when I when I wrote that little ebook, uh, Oil Fall, and I completed it throughout 2018, I said that the one of the big things that's going to happen in this decade where we are right now you know 4 4 to 5 years later is that when we get an economic rebound the rebound will have other places to go than just an internal combustion engine now we get rebounds and you get this buying activity in electric vehicles not just here but in in China and Europe and that's that's why it's too late and that's why you know, Saudi Arabia needed to think about all of this in 2016 and 2017, and they and they didn't. So it's too late for them. Well, even the IEA, you know, God bless them, the conservative and always behind oh, the, the yeah. eight ball IEA. Yeah, right. Uh, it makes the point all the time that going forward, renewables will account for all of the growth in in uh, primary energy demand. Uh, and yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, that that's the argument, right? Yeah, and and then and then as uh, solar ramps up, uh, you know, doubles and triples and quadruples the generating capacity globally, then eventually it will eat into that eighty percent that you know prime fossil fuels have been stuck at uh, for a long time, and then fossil fuel uh, consumption will begin to fall. And so there seems to be this, you know, you you mentioned in. In uh, petroleum in the U.S., we're talking about renewables at the global level. But the idea is that growth goes to the new clean energy technologies. Yeah, I think the IEA's argument is on its strongest ground when talking about the power grid. 
right? So if, if, if the IA is saying we're moving into a time when all the marginal growth in the power grid will be covered by non-fossil fuels, that's a pretty good argument. And, and I'm, more, I'm warmer to that now because we're actually getting a solar explosion. I mean, it, it melts your brain what's happening with solar globally. It's melted my brain. Um, and I'm and I'm a guy with high case high growth cases, right? I'm a, I'm like, if you want to find someone who's super optimistic about solar, come to me. And we're getting a forecast that's even you know beyond that. I, I think the IEA is on not so on firm ground when it's all about all energy. We still have a we still have a coal for steel problem and a natural gas replacing coal problem, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's set those aside because really we're talking about oil here. That's how we got right. started on on this interview. Yeah. And and I and I would and it, it seems like you're arguing that the the growth in uh in transportation uh, is going to come from from electric. I and, think so. Yes. You know, we ran a we uh, came across a Reuters story a couple months ago that said between now and 2030 the uh, Automakers, and I mean in the largest sense, you know, people who also make buses and and you know heavy-duty uh, trucks, that sort of thing. But all electric transportation writ large, uh, the industry is going to spend 1.2 trillion dollars between now and 2030 to switch over to electric. Okay, and that's a lot of money. That's a tremendous amount of money going yeah. into plant, going into infrastructure, going into supply chains. And I think that for me, more than anything, you know, it's follow the money. Well, where is the money going in transportation? It's all going to electric. And as I say to deaf ears in Alberta all the time, your customers are talking to you. These are the people who determine what fuel goes in a car, a truck, a bus, a tractor, a garbage truck, whatever it happens to be. And they just picked electric. Well, you know, Canada needs to, we've got new maps here in the United States. There's the battery belt. There's the EV production belt. There's the lithium processing belt. We've got rare earth material recycling uh, companies that have been uh, given grants. This is where all the, all the growth is. And as I say, you know, look at our maps and, and ask yourself, do you have a map like the U.S.? And if you don't, you know, get yourself one, get get yourself battery production. I mean, look at look at what Tesla just did pairing with, you know, Panasonic. So. OK, yeah. I want to I'm all, I'm fond of saying, Gregor, when I'm talking about the electricity systems that the you look at the U.S. and it's it's so dynamic. I mean, what the U.S. has done in the past three to four years in terms mm-hmm. of beginning to modernize its grid and invest in in mm-hmm. uh, distributed energy resources and upgrading trends, all of that stuff, it's so dynamic compared to what's happening in Canada. But now what you're arguing is the same dynamism has now come to the auto industry. And we don't see that in Canada. We see a little bit of it in, in Ontario. And what we're and this is interesting to me. I've had some economists push back and say, oh, no, we shouldn't subsidize battery plants. You know, we should spend that on healthcare. Well, look, if you're not investing in the in the clean energy in the industry of the future, then you are going to get left behind. I think we've Canada has learned. We would think we would would have learned that lesson, but apparently we haven't. So, give my listeners uh, a sense of just how dynamic 
capital investment plant building plans are in the U.S. in the auto sector? Uh, well, we uh, that's that's tough to that's tough to describe. Essentially, what's hap what's essentially what's happening is is what the uh, investment and infrastructure professionals have been talking about for two decades. And essentially, what's happening is the U.S. government is acting as the catalyst, the backer of the 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 seed. It's actually acting as like a venture capitalist. And it's saying, we want to throw money at all of this. And then out in the rest of the world, you've got private capital that says, aha, now I feel comfortable investing because I'm investing right alongside the, the, the government. And I know that I'm not going to face all these difficult hurdles because they want that battery factory in South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, you know, Ohio, and, and so forth. So the U.S. is the number one recipient of FDI, foreign direct investment last year. I can't, I don't think the U.S. is good in that rank, but it hasn't ever been, hasn't been number one in a long time. So the money is pouring in because it's not an illusion. It's real. I hear this uh, all the time when I talk to uh, American uh, innovators and utility executives would be uh, another group that, that I hear it from, but they're excited. Like when you talk to them, the opportunities, the market opportunities that have been unleashed by all of this oh. investment and and the new policies and the and the industrial policy that the uh, that the Biden administration has come up with, uh, this is unle I I can't remember the last time that I saw, you know, uh, industry and 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 private capital this excited about a, a boom time in in industry. And uh, so I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not making this up. This is actually happening no. on the ground in the United States. No, I mean the other thing I'd say to your Canadian audience is you're you're starting to see traditional conservative economic thinkers starting to fall into line, like uh, Neil Ferguson, who's a well-known uh, UK you know economic historian. He wrote a big Bloomberg article uh, earlier in the week that. I was happy he cited he cited work from my newsletter and he was saying you know what the automobile revolution is a revolution it presents an enormous opportunity to save money on oil and we should probably take this more seriously let's he was sort of like let's stop all the ankle biting and sniping about it that this represents a uh a, a you know a big gain as i like to say markham energy transitions are wealth creation events uh, you've got a lot of conservatives who think it's a wealth destruction event. No, they're always wealth creation events, always, because the new energy is cheaper, better, faster. If it's not cheaper, better, faster, no transition. You're not going to get a transition. So it's cheaper, better, faster. And so it's going to be a wealth creation event. And I think a lot of these guys who are just so concerned about and they're crying over the future lack of growth in oil. So what, man? Like it was never about coal or oil or wood. It's never about that. It's about the efficient use of energy so that we can have more of it at a lower price. What's the big deal, man? It's like, that's how it's always been. Well, it's the problem with incumbents. But here, <laughs> yes, I want to point, I, I wanna point out an irony to you, Gregor, is that <laughs> uh, in Western Canada, which is you know, basically the, the, the wheat belt and the grain belt of, of Canada, 
Yeah. A hundred years ago, it was farmers who led the energy transition. They were the ones who were buying tractors. And uh -huh. then a couple of years later, they bought a, they bought a, a combine and then right. they, they bought, you know, a three point hitch, something with a three point hitch so that they could use other implements with it. And then they got a tractor with rubber tires and a bigger motor. All of that was driven by, by farmers. Uh, and here they are now, a hundred years later, they've become the incumbents. I know. And, <laughs> and now they're pushing back against the wealth creation of an energy transition that yeah. benefited their, you know, their grandfathers and great grandfathers and great great grandfathers. Uh, so to me, that a certain irony in that. What can I tell you? Yeah, I mean, I like to joke. Uh, imagine standing on the street corner in Manchester, England, in uh, you know, eighteen fifteen, and saying this whole thing with coal is uh, that's not going to work out. We need to stick with wood, even though the forests are you know disappearing. What's so great? You know, what's so great about coal? It's the same thing today. It's like, oh, I can't believe we're going to give up oil, you know, for electricity. Yeah, we're going to give up the fifty percent loss that you get for every dollar you spend on oil. 50 cents of it goes up into the atmosphere as heat waste, okay? So we're going to claw that back with electricity. What is the problem? <laughs> well, you're being generous. I, I think the, the, <laughs> the, the loss is, is more like uh, uh, 65, 70, 75%. Well, yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's much bigger. But yeah. uh, let's get back to oil. We'll finish up our conversation with sure. oil. So the American shale revolution that started in 2008 mm -hmm. is, is changing. The industry is maturing. It, it's a lot of its tier one properties have yeah. now been tapped. Uh, it's not it's not scheduled to or not forecast to grow much. What's going to happen to the shale revolution? What's going to happen to those heavy uh, oil refineries? There's five five million five point five million uh, barrels a day of heavy crude oil refining capacity that Alberta supplies about three and a half million of that. So it dominates that particular market, are we going to see prices fall? Are we going to see refineries close? Are we going to, what, give us the next, your, your best guess on between now and 2030, what we're going to see in North America. Yeah. So in the same way that U.S. natural gas production moved ahead of U.S. natural gas consumption so that it could serve a growing and expanding export market, we're going to see that with oil. So at some point this decade, U.S. oil demand is actually is finally going to come off its plateau and it's start to going to fall. That won't stop U.S. oil production from from being, you know, either maintaining its current level or slightly going above its current levels for export as long as somebody somewhere in the net in the rest of the world is is growing their their consumption. Now, when it comes to price. Price is going to be, well, I'll, I'll make it simple. I don't believe that there's anyone who has the trading experience that can su successfully trade price from this point forward. I've kind of written about this just in the last week or two. It's going to be impossible because the, the various forces coming at you from different directions, you just cannot interpret what those forces are. Price is actually going to be firmer than people expect because the industry has discipline, okay? The industry does not want to overproduce. So it's going to be firmer than you expect, but it's going to be also be more volatile than people expect because demand and supply are going to be too tight. It's a it's a it's not a depleting resource. It's a resource for which there is depleting demand 
growth, right? And that makes for just an impossibly tricky thing to try to trade. So one advice I have is don't try to predict the oil price. Don't try to trade the oil price. Don't try to trade oil and gas stocks. That era is is over. If you if you do well doing any of those things, it's because of luck, uh, not because of genius at this point. I, I want to give you my, my forecast, my best guess. We'll call it a guesstimate of what's going to happen to Canadian heavy oil exports to the U.S. Oh, I, okay. think, mm-hmm. I think yeah, because uh, the Canadian producers are putting, a tr- uh, they've, they've driven their costs down. They're already, their break-evens are already down in the $30 to $45 range. They're, they think they're going to get down to $20, $25 at the floor and maybe $30, $35 at the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And that makes them a very competitive barrel. And I think they can out-compete Colombia, uh, Brazil, Venezuela, Mexico, I think they can outcompete them for a declining heavy crude market okay. in the US. The question is, at what point do you run out of market? Because that's only a, a two, maybe a two million barrel a day cushion. And now then you're getting into their bedrock market, their bedrock demand for their for that heavy crude that comes out of the oil sands. And then at that point, then they're going to have to cut, cut back production because they haven't got enough shipping capacity to the coast to get to other markets. Yeah, I mean, Canada's been drafting off of the expansion of export capacity in the Gulf Coast of the United States. So remember when Canada went through this whole thing, we're like, should we build LNG you know, terminals or where should we build them? No, we're not going to build them. It didn't matter. We built them. We built them. So so the you had a price you have price convergence right because now north it's not just american natural gas it's north american natural gas the same thing with with oil so i think you know we're already we're already converting really into into less and less of an oil consumer here in the united states and more and more of a petroleum product exporter it's like we've got this industrial base that turns all types of crude oil into products. That's what we. That's what we're really gaining expertise in now, and we're going to keep doing that as long as the rest of the world keeps demanding oil. But as we discussed already, I don't think global global oil is going to increase again on any sustainable basis outside of that plateau. Yeah, I. I so I think that the the takeaway from this conversation is that there's a lot of there's there's a lot of balls in the air right at the moment, and it's hard to say exactly how all of those, which ones we're going to drop, which ones are going to stay in the air, how that's going to all all play out. But the gen, the arc of the market, the arc of demand, the arc of the technology and prices is pretty clear. And the only question now really is pace and when we get there and where even three years ago, we were talking about these kinds of things happening in the mid-2030s. Now we're talking about the mid 2020s. Literally, is right around the corner, and this is an industry that requires you know five to ten years to build anything or plan anything. And now we're talking about two years, three years to fundamental structural market uh, change. If I was advising the Canadian national government and possibly a provincial government or two, I would say very sincerely and in a very friendly way, as my as a friend living next door, I would say, if you agree that OPEC and Saudi Arabia didn't react soon enough, five to six years ago, then you have to consider that you're not reacting enough 
for what's going to happen over the next five to seven years. So I, I would really encourage Canada to start reacting to what's coming and to stop pretending that it's not. Yeah. Well, on that note, Gregor, if you say that in Alberta, you're going to get called a communist. Sure. Why not? <laughs> but I'm a capitalist. <laughs> uh, I know, but this is not a rational conversation with yes, the, the folks course. who are going to call you a yes. communist. Okay. okay. Well, look, Gregor, thank you very much for this. It's been very insightful. Thank you again, Markham. Nice to see you. 